is a special ABI podcast. I am Bill Rochelle, Editor-at-Large for American Bankruptcy Institute. With two expert professors today, we are going to be analyzing the February 27 Supreme Court opinion by Justice Sonia Sotomayor in the case of Merit Management versus FTI Consulting. The opinion for the court, of course, was unanimous. The opinion appears to turn the tide on the interpretation of the safe harbor in Section 546E of the Bankruptcy Code. Courts had been consistently expanding the safe harbor to bar virtually any fraudulent conveyance suit so long as a bank was involved in the chain of payments. From oral argument on November 6, it was obvious, to me at least, that the Supreme Court was going to affirm the Seventh Circuit and hold that using a bank as a mere conduit would not invoke the safe harbor. The opinion by Justice Sotomayor was much broader than what I, at least, was expecting. Our expert panel will explain what the opinion means in a few minutes. But first, let me introduce our panel. Both, by the way, in addition to being law professors, were on the amicus brief, which very obviously the Supreme Court took very much to heart because, I think it's safe to say, large portions of their brief were essentially uh, squibbed by Justice Sotomayor. First, we have Professor Ralph Brubaker, the Viketa Professor of Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. Second, we have Professor Bruce Markell, the Professor of Bankruptcy Law and Practice at the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. First, I think, of course, we have to lay out the facts of the case before the Supreme Court. Merit management involves a typical LBO of a privately held company. To purchase stock, money emanated from an investment bank and went to a commercial bank acting as escrow agent. The bank escrow agent ultimately paid $16.5 million to a selling shareholder. Later, a bankruptcy trustee sued to recover the $16.5 million as a constructively fraudulent transfer. The district judge dismissed the suit under the safe harbor because the transaction involved both a transfer by a financial institution and a transfer to a financial institution. If you don't happen to have the bankruptcy code in front of you, Section 546E says that a trustee may not recover a transfer that was, and I quote, by or to or for the benefit of a financial institution. The Seventh Circuit reversed in an opinion written by Chief Judge Diane Wood. As it happens, Circuit Judge Richard Posner was on the panel. The Seventh Circuit held that the safe harbor was not applicable because the court must look to, and I quote, the economic substance of the transaction, end quote. If a bank in the chain of payments was enough, the only unprotected sale would be one involving bags of cash. The selling shareholder appealed, and the Supreme Court granted certiorari 
because there was a circuit split. The Seventh Circuit was allied with the Eleventh Circuit, but the Second, Third, Sixth, Eighth, and Tenth Circuits were on the other side, all holding that the safe harbor would preclude suit, even if a bank were a mere conduit. The case was argued on November 6th with, as I said, a unanimous opinion on February 27. Now, to start the conversation, Professor Brubaker, I'd like to ask you this. What did the Supreme Court hold? So, probably the simplest way to <laughs> state the holding of the court is uh, the way the court itself stated it, which is that the only um, transfer that is relevant for purposes of applying the safe harbor is the transfer that the trustee is seeking to avoid. So, for example, in the uh, merit management case itself, uh, when the trustee brought uh, this lawsuit, uh, the debtor, uh, Valley View, right, uh, had made um, this uh, transfer indirectly by causing Credit Suisse, had borrowed on its Credit Suisse's line of credit, had Credit Suisse uh, directly uh, transmit the purchase funds uh, to the escrow agent, Citizens Bank, uh, and the escrow agent, right upon deposit of the shares, right, transmits the uh, sales proceeds for the shares to the selling uh, shareholders. Well, and the trustee challenged that transaction. The trustee said, well, the transfer I'm challenging uh, as constructively fraudulent was a transfer made uh, by Valley View, right, a transfer of an interest of the debtor and property done indirectly, right, all within uh, the statutory terms for what's a transfer, it could be direct or indirect, right, is an indirect transfer of an interest of the debtor and property made by Valley View, uh, and the transferee that I'm challenging uh, as receiving a constructively fraudulent transfer uh, is the selling shareholder here. It was merit management uh, was the selling selling shareholder uh, being uh, sued. So for purposes of the trustee's right, uh, prima facie avoidance action under Section 548 was saying right, the transfer that's being challenged uh, is a transfer made by Valley View to uh, the selling shareholder, that's what I'm alleging, is constructively fraudulent. Well, the court said, well, uh, in applying right, Section 546E, which also speaks in terms of right, uh, a transfer, right, the 548 says a, tr a trustee may avoid a transfer. 546E says the trustee may not avoid a transfer, right? So under 548, may avoid a transfer that has certain characteristics. Under 546E, may not avoid uh, a transfer that has certain characteristics. That for application of 546E, you have to look at the same transfer that you're talking about for purposes of Section 548. What is the transfer well, that's being challenged under Section 548? Let me so, ask you this. Right, for, uh, okay, go ahead. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, other courts had gone off one way or the other on the notion of whether or not the bank was a mere conduit. Did that play into Justice Sotomayor's decision? Um, indirectly, but that was all uh, happening off stage, so to speak. Um, the, the conduit concept is very uh, important, right? And the way we usually see it play out is under the trustee's case in chief, right? That right, 
person who's being sued by the trustee uh, may step step up and say, well, you can't sue me because I was a mere conduit and I wasn't actually uh, the quote-unquote transferee of this transfer at all that can be challenged uh, under, right, that can be, uh, uh, that has any liability under Section 550, which talks about the liability of an initial transferee or subsequent transferees. Right, the conduit step up and say, "We can't. I'm not actually a transferee at all within the meaning of these avoidance provisions. Right? Uh, I'm just a mere uh, conduit." That goes into sort of defining what's the transfer that's being challenged. Right, right. which, uh, which I think is actually, I mean, to just to amplify, kind of what Ralph has said. I I think that's the unstated assumption, or at least the the stated. A proposition without realizing it was an assumption. I mean, the, the opinion only uses the word conduit twice when characterizing arguments of the parties. The, the opinion never substantively uses the word conduit. The word it does use substantively, though, is overarching. Um, it talks about the overarching transfer, uh, which I think Ralph would characterize and I would characterize as the characters as the transfer from Valley View to the selling shareholder. Um, and it even on the first page sets up a diagram, you know, that this is a transfer from A to D that went by way of intermediaries, not conduits, but intermediaries from D and C. And the court says uh, that this the transfer is the overarching transfer. Now, the other thing the court never cites is the definition of transfer. It never talks about 101.54. Um, it more or less assumes that the trustee was correct in isolating the economic effect of money going from uh, Valley View to the selling shareholders um, as a transfer. It leaves open, quite, I think, explicitly, the ability to transfer that. And I think that's where this opinion will have its next, if you will, impact, is that it's, I mean, lots of people will talk about it, and I'm sure we'll get into whether or not this, this, um, the opinion matches a plain meaning Version, but I think the next version is something that Ralph was talking before I tried to cut him off, which is that uh, what we what we will be looking at is whether or not really it was a transfer to someone uh, uh, without call it a conduit, call it whatever, but it's a it's it's effect somebody touched the money without really getting any economic interest in it, uh, other than maybe a small commission. So I mean, I think the real I mean, I agree with everything that Ralph says, but. To me, it just raises another issue that I'm a little flabbergasted that the court didn't address, which is, you know, it's the indirect transfer that we're trying to go at here. And there is a whole lore uh, and body of law with respect to collapsing transactions and also a corresponding whole body of law that refuses to collapse transactions. This seems to assume that you can do that, and that's a pretty big assumption. Well, well not, 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 not only... I'm Not sorry. only does it assume it, it, it doesn't even use the word collapsing. It never addresses right. the issue. But it doesn't have to, or, right? The reason that it assumed that the transfer at issue here was the transfer from Valley View to Merit Management is because the parties had assumed that. Uh, even the defendant, in its briefing all the way up to the Seventh Circuit, said, yes, the transfer at issue here for purposes of Section 548 is the transfer from Valley View to merit management. Nobody was right, contesting that uh, the only role of the intermediaries was as mere conduits that could have no liability as transferees. So there, there was no reason for them to address that. The parties had already defined well, the, the, what the there transfer is a, at issue was. Of course there's a reason. 
you only get you only, as you point out you only get to use 546e if you're the transferee and so what you're saying i think and i think what i agree with is that they were they were trying to hold two uh, inconsistent positions at the same time. One, that the main transfer was uh, from one non-financial institution to another. And at the same time, this was a series of free transactions uh, from you know, uh, the Valley View to its financial intermediary to the financial intermediary uh, for the selling shareholders and then to them. And they want to say that... Transactions? I'm sorry? A series of what transactions? Free transactions? Is that what you said? Uh, no, just uh, um, to be honest, we'll, 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 people will run back the tape and figure out what I said. Uh, what I meant to say was, uh, you might even say if you want to invoke Latin menzi transactions. These are these are a series of. The question is, what were the financial intermediaries doing if they weren't? taking money from one person and passing it on to another. And probably money's not the best term there. I mean, they're taking funds or, you know, electronic blips on some wire transfer screen, but they the money's clearly passing through them. I mean, sure. for example, how would this work if if in fact to take Sotomayor's opinion, if this goes A to B to C to D and C's a financial intermediary, what happens if you know, by chance at the time at the time that B is transferring to C, C becomes insolvent, right? We have a financial institution um, that is taken over by the FDIC before they can transfer the money on to the selling shareholders. Um, that makes it look a lot more like a transfer, uh, like three separate transfers. And I think I may have said three instead of three. Three separate transfers as opposed to one. So, But the problem is you're trying to... Define what a transfer is in the abstract without looking at who's the debtor, what is it that the debtor is trying to avoid, right? What you can, all that the debtor can avoid is a transfer of an interest of the debtor in the property, right? So before you can figure out, right, the transfer that's sought to be avoided, you have to know who the debtor is, right? And you have to know, right, who is the debtor attacking as the initial transferee under Section 550A that I can recover this from. Right. There are a lot right. of people they're never going to get to as in, in that chain of transmittal uh, because they're not right, the initial transferee under 550A, even though they may have touched the funds as they were passing uh, through. Right? Yeah, yeah, so somebody that's, in the, in the con- chain. That's what conduit theory, conduit theory does. Conduit theory says, I got a transfer, but it wasn't transfer of property of the debtor. It was a transfer from another financial institution on. Um you know, because either they're doing something with the money or the funds, or they're not. Um, if they're agents, I mean, if they were agents of of the debtor, then the property, then then the the funds transfer was still a transfer of property of the debtor. But at some point, the agency link breaks, um, and at some point, uh, it becomes, you know, the question is, I mean, someone, who, I mean, the the argument on the other side that made the most sense, and I'm not sure. I, it makes any it makes ultimate sense, but was listen five forty six e talks about transfers to or for the benefit of financial intermediaries um, and your point is that wasn't an issue here because that's not the transfer that the trustee alleged that makes sense, but that's ultimately unsatisfying it's ultimately unsatisfying because we all know that what happened in this transaction the direct transfers were a to b to c to d 
and left unstated, unexamined, and really unarticulated is the fact that there was an indirect transfer from A to D. Because, again, as uh, Bill kind of mentioned in the opening, uh, that would only happen under a kind of a strict interpretation if A, you know, handed bags of money over to D, which we know didn't happen. So, I mean, how would you characterize, Ralph, the roles of, of the financial intermediaries, the the escrow companies, the banks that finance this. I mean, they touched money of the debtor. Um, is is this just a case where the trustee sued the wrong person? Uh, no, I, in think order that, to... I think that I think every I, I would characterize it the way everybody has characterized it, including the defendant uh, conceded that they were mere conduits. Uh, they couldn't be considered transferees for purposes of fraudulent uh, transfer uh, liability. Right? So you, they're disregarded for purposes of analysis under 548. All the court is saying is, is if you're disregarding them for purposes of analysis under 548, you're also disregarding them for purposes of analysis under 546E. Sure. All right. Well, no, let, I agree let with me, that, but, but, but how about uh, – I was. Let, let me ask uh, Ralph this point. All right, so we have a new, brand-new case. comes out after uh, merit management, and it's the same setup. The trustee says, I want to go after the ultimate uh, selling shareholders. Um, do the selling shareholders get to argue that their receipt of the funds was not receipt of a transfer from the debtor? And how they do they go about that. arguing that? Sure, they could say. Sure, they but, could but say. It, well, they they could I mean, argue. Is it a winning argument? I guess. Right. I don't think. I don't think it is. But they could argue. I mean, they could argue along yeah. the lines that you you've argued recently in print. Uh, that well, the first person to touch the money is actually a transferee, right? Um, and they may have liability, right? Uh, so, right, the, the subsequent people down the line can say, uh, "I'm not an initial transferee. I'm a subsequent transferee, uh, an immediate or intermediate, right? Whatever 558.2 calls them, immediate um, or intermediate transferee, right? right? Uh, I'm a subsequent transferee." But I've got the good faith for value defense of 550B. Uh, they could argue that, but right, the, yeah, every let, court let, has let accepted me, conduit theory and, let, and is not going to buy that argument. Let me ask you all a couple of questions. Uh, let's because I want to focus on not theory so much anymore now because we have this opinion. Let me ask you some questions dealing with cases that surely, as God made little green apples, will arise. Uh, in the case of a non-public company, some courts, including, as I recall, the Second Circuit, held that the LBO of a non-public company can be immunized by the safe harbor if money passed through the hands of a bank or a financial institution. Now, if that case arises in the future with respect to a non-public company, is the safe harbor going to be a defense or not in view of this decision? One of you want to jump in? I would say no. Um, and because I, in one sense, I think the notion of or, or the, well, Bruce, the attribute of public, public company is a red it, herring. Because okay, the point is, is that if... We'll, because, I'll get into that next about public or not. But isn't right. that the holding of this case with a non-public company? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I think that's right. right. Because if, if the trustee okay. says the indirect transfer was of the funds 
from you know the debtor to the selling shareholder and gets away with that, right? This this opinion says you can have as many financial intermediaries in between. Doesn't matter. Okay. Now then, let's go to what may be the more difficult question. Let's go to the LBO of a public company where a trustee sues one of the ultimate selling shareholders. Is the safe harbor a defense anymore or not with respect to the LBO of a public company? Well, I say no. Uh, it's not a defense anymore. Um, the defense is going to have to be something else. I mean, they may have, and because right, there's nothing in 546E that would distinguish between a public company and a private company with respect right, to the right. shareholders, and the, and the fact that there's some sort of um, you know protected entity uh, in the chain of transmittal. Um, it's going to depend more on whether the court is. Right, and it's, again, it goes back to this point that all this stuff is going to be fought uh, under. Uh, the case in chief for the avoidance uh, ground, right? And there, with the, the public company, the hurdle is going to be showing that they're actually an initial transferee of an avoidable right. uh, transfer. The only difference there is that instead of having all financial intermediaries, you're going to interpose a stockbroker who is a market maker or a financial uh, securities intermediary with respect to the stock who also have the protection of 546E. So um, to me, although it pains me to agree with Ralph on anything, I think he's absolutely <laughs> right on saying there's no difference between the public or the private. All you're doing is just adding more protected intermediaries in the beginning, which becomes irrelevant <clears throat> because the court says the transfer that we care about is the one that the trustee <clears throat> has identified. But, but so in other I mean, words, there still is a, there's still a difference another, between the public and the private companies in that the the trustee can more easily collapse the transactions to show right a transfer made by the debtor to a selling shareholder in a private uh, LBO than they're going to be able to do right in a public uh, LBO because the way these LBOs are structured they're never structured so the money uh, goes directly from the debtor. To the selling shareholder in the public one, it may be right a public tender offer where the purchaser, right, not the debtor, uh, the purchaser makes a public tender offer for the selling shareholder's share. So the money is going to flow from that purchaser to the selling shareholders, not the debtor. Well, right in the in the private context, you can collapse that because those um, selling shareholders are close enough to the transaction that the court says, well, they all know what's going on. They all are aware of the structure. Uh, so we can disregard the, the, the precise way they structured and say what, what, what was really going on here was money from the debtor going out to the selling shareholders. They're less likely to do that in the public context uh, because the public shareholders don't have that awareness of the structure of the transaction. Uh, but it's just a difference between the circumstances under which the court will collapse the transaction and the circumstances will, uh, under which the court will not collapse the transaction. Has nothing to do with I agree, I agree with the, I agree with the last part, but I, I don't necessarily agree. I mean, I'm not exactly sure in terms of isolating transfers that the knowledge of the recipient makes all that much difference. Well, it's um, just I mean, the way either, the courts have applied collapsing doctrine. Well, does, yeah, does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I must say that you all a minute ago said something that sounded very important, which is that 
it may no longer be true that the LBO of a public company is now, shall we say, completely protected by the safe harbor. That's going to be a pretty big deal if that turns out to be the case. Let me ask you this. Uh, um, In just a few words, after yesterday's opinion, who does remain protected by the safe harbor? The actual protected entities laid out in 546E. And they are who? Um, commodity uh, brokers, uh, forward contract okay. merchants, stock, stock brokers, brokers, financial institutions, institutions financial, financial participants, participants securities, clearing, securities clearing, clearing agencies. Right? I, mean, right. I mean, again, no. that back up. What, what, I mean, we're talking about those people as actual defendants. The primary defendant in yesterday's case was, you know, where the money wound up. <clears throat> the trustee apparently did not sue uh, the inter- the intermediary, excuse me, the intermediate transferees. Went directly in, I guess, under a theory of indirect uh, transfer of property of the debtor. Went directly to selling shareholder. Um, so, and if you think there are transfers from of the debtor through the financial intermediaries, then you would say the financial intermediaries but for 546 would have liability, but 546 gives them a defense. Now, the, 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 what, what people like the defendant in um, merit management were doing is saying, listen, because the, the money got passed through someone who is immune, you can't come after me. Um, uh, you know, it got washed, uh, in essence, before it got to me, and you know that's then the Seventh Circuit saw through that and said you know you, you know you can't stop this but just by interposing uh, um, uh, a financial intermediary. Yeah, and that that kind of well, argument that was accepted by so many courts was just a perversion of the original purpose of the safe harbor. Right. Well, well, well. That that's marvelous. Uh, did everybody hear what Professor Brew Baker just said? Would you like to repeat that again, just in case somebody missed it? When you that, use the word perversion, <laughs> that argument by merit management, but that the fact that this transfer to me passed through the hands of these protected entities somehow immunized me from any liability, was just a complete perversion of the original purpose of the safe harbor provision. It was not to protect people like merit management from liability; it was to protect the intermediaries themselves from liability. Well, or the or or actually, as the Second Circuit has put it so often. To protect the financial markets. Listen, let me ask you this. That's, but, but that's the purpose. That's that's the purpose, right? There is some statements to that effect in the legislative history, but that's in conjunction with broadening the protection to also protect transfers made by a financial intermediary. So that's to protect cases where uh, a financial intermediary uh, is the debtor. So that the trustee right. of the financial intermediary is attacking all these transfers that the right, financial intermediary made before bankruptcy. Right. So all the settlement uh, payments that have passed through their hands for the 90 days for, before bankruptcy are are going to be attacked as preferential transfers. Right. Those are going through the hands of other financial intermediaries. So right, they've got these massive lawsuits for massive liabilities amongst these players. Right. The hubs in uh, the securities industry. And that's the ripple effect systemic risk that they were talking about. But that's solely with respect to the, the portion that protects a transfer made by 
a protected intermediary. If they file bankruptcy, okay. right, they can't start filing all these lawsuits just because right these this, these monies pass through their hands. Uh, another way Listen, to do it is it's 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 the transfer of the property of the debtor, and the financial intermediaries are not the debtor. At some level, the court's assuming that the monies that's passing through the financial intermediaries were not the property of the financial intermediaries. They were handing over the property of the debtor. And if you play that agency argument through, that sustains their position. Well, listen, let me ask you all something uh, about the 2006 amendment to the safe harbor. That was one where Congress changed the law, stuck in the parenthetical to say that uh, it's immunized if it was a a transaction to or for the benefit of one of these protected entities. Folks at the time, me included, thought that this was just another attempt by Congress to expand the safe harbor, broader than it already was. There was, however, no legislative history at all to explain why that amendment came into being. Do you all think that the court's opinion was a reaction in any degree to the lack of legislative history explaining that 2006 amendment? That's not my immediate reaction to the court's uh, opinion. Uh, Bruce, do you have a different reaction? Um, no, I have a much more cynical... I mean, I agree with you, but I have a much more cynical view. I mean, first of all, this is all explained wonderfully by Ralph in his bankruptcy law letter that the court cited. Uh, but second, um, when I read what the court had written about the 2006 and also some of its its general um, discussion of avoiding powers, I hate to say it, but I mean, I got the opinion that someone was writing without fully understanding what they were writing, that someone had made this argument to them and they were trying to recast that argument in a way that they thought would, would stand up. Because, um, I mean, for whatever reason, I think they were defensive rather than than proactive in terms of how they kind of explained how that, that fit in. And thus it left me with, you know, I mean, it wasn't overwhelmingly uh, persuasive to me. But then for me, it didn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm initially, with respect to their, how they dealt with the 2006 amendment, I think it's ultimately... Uh, correct that the meaning that was being attributed to it um, by merit management and um, uh, the courts that uh, have uh, sort of proffered uh, had adopted the view that merit management was arguing for. Um, they were trying to attribute um, an acontextual meaning to that without looking at right, the, the use of the exact same phrase for the benefit of all throughout the avoiding power uh, provisions which has a long established meaning going back to the Bankruptcy Act of 1867, uh, this concept of right, um, beneficiary liability. I'm not the, the transferee of a transfer, but I benefited uh, from the transfer. DePrizio, right? right? Everybody knows what beneficiary liability is in this context. Guarantors uh, who are relieved of liability because of the transfer can have beneficiary uh, liability. That's that's obviously what it was doing. It was uh, sort of paralleling uh, that exact same language that appears throughout, uh, and it did broaden the protection for 
right? Uh, these financial intermediaries as defendants, right? So even if they are not being uh, named as a defendant because they were a transferee, right, they may have potential for beneficiary liability, right? There's this very complex set of guarantees in connection with uh, all of these securities settlement uh, transactions, right? Somebody might have a creative theory where they have some beneficiary liability, even though they're not a transferee under a conduit theory. This eliminates that, right? You can't hold them liability uh, liable using a beneficiary theory, uh, either under just a conventional, traditional understanding of what for the benefit of means in this context. What I was just going to say is, I mean, all this does is eliminate what in negotiable instruments would be called the shelter defense, right? You don't benefit because someone ahead of you in, in whatever chain of transmission um, has uh, a defense. Uh, and, and it says we just look at the ultimate and uh, and intended beneficiaries, and if that's a transfer, the, and the ultimate beneficiary isn't a financial intermediary of some type, you don't even look at 546. Yeah. Well, listen, let's, I, I want to let our audience go in just a minute, but before we do, I'd like to bring up one other topic. Actually, just shortly before the cert petition was filed in the merit management case, there was a cert petition filed from the Tribune decision of the Second Circuit, which had not only the mere conduit, but a whole bunch of other more extensive issues regarding the safe harbor. That um, cert petition has been lying fallow ever since merit management cert was granted. And I note for our audience's uh, attention that the Tribune cert petition, actually it's in the Supreme Court called Deutsche Bank, is now going to be conferenced by the justices on Friday, March the 2nd, which means we may have a disposition of that yeah, cert I'll tell petition. You. And I'll tell you Monday. what the disposition. I'll tell you what the disposition will say. What is remanded? What is remanded for proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. Okay. Uh, I mean, thank I mean, you. I mean, that's I, what they got. I mean, because because the Deutsche Bank I, slash I, Tribune I, has got all sorts of other issues. You point out, for example, the interplay between state law fraudulent transfers and 544B, right, right. which wasn't an issue in this case under Note Four, um, and well, all let, sorts let, of other stuff. Let, let me ask you this, uh, Bruce. To what extent does the merit management decision force the Second Circuit to re-examine some of its other holdings in Tribune, such as precluding individual creditors from filing suit on account of their own claims? Yeah, that's a I'm, tough question. You, know, the, you want to take that's it a off? tough question. That's the that's like the Mortgage America case from the Fifth Circuit. I mean, the interplay between how 544B affects individual creditor actions with respect to closing of the case when there's an abandoned by by the trustee. I don't think any of those issues um, uh, are flagged or decided in yesterday's case. And I think the Second Circuit can very easily go off on whatever. Uh, uh, interpretation of Fiesta that they want to on that, because I don't think they're bound by this this case in any respect. But they are well, bound in this me, respect, me... though, uh, in that, right, if uh, the 546E safe harbor defense doesn't apply, right, there's no grounds on which to say, right, you can't uh, and doesn't prevent 
all right, a lawsuit under Section 548, there's no basis on which to say, uh, to infer uh, that, uh, but Section 546E somehow preempts and precludes uh, a similar lawsuit under Section 544B. So to the extent that it right. narrows uh, the, the safe harbor, it also narrows the scope of any implicit preemption. Sure. No, I, I agree with that. But the, the but the, the specific issue in terms of, I mean, uh, uh, Deutsche Bank's last Tribune was structured so as to explicitly exclude post-case or post-confirmation, I forget exactly which one, uh, individual creditors from reclaiming whatever fraudulent transfer actions they may have had pre-petition against them. Uh, and I think that issue may still be live. Well, whatever. Uh, one thing is for sure, I do believe <laughs> Whatever, there's that, a million dollars uh, <laughs> on the whatever, so yeah. Yeah, this, this decision is going to make people rethink a lot of safe harbor law. I mean, the Second Circuit took the safe harbor extremely broadly, as broad as it conceivably could. But I suppose the argument can now be made that in view of marriage management, you really can't read the safe harbor so broadly. Well, time will tell, and we'll have to see what happens in Tribune when it goes back to the Second Circuit and how that's briefed and how that's handled after remand. But for now, folks, I'm afraid we have probably exhausted our audience, if not ourselves. We thank you very much for listening. Uh, I should end by saying that we have two more cases uh, to be decided by the Supreme Court this term. The Lake Ridge case was actually argued a week before merit management, that is to say, the 31st of October, a decision in that case could come down any time, perhaps as soon as next week. The third case is the Lamar Archer Coffrin case, where cert was only recently granted. That case will be argued in the Supreme Court on April the 27th, with, I guess, therefore, a decision coming down very late in the term. So that's all we have for right now. Professors Brubaker and Markell, I thank you very much for your insightful comments. Thank you. And we will report to you again as soon as the Supreme Court decides Lake Ridge. <laughs>